0: Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is uh, time that we're going to resume sun, the sunburnt series. And here we are once again, and it's uh, summertime, and it's uh, the sun is out, and I've yet to get sunburnt. That's just because I wear sunblock 2 million, which is uh, really the safest way to uh, not get sunburnt. But I'm joined here, of course, with Dr. Peter Kapsner, and we always look forward to this time in the summer where we get to speak to uh, a variety of different uh, guests and authors and all kinds of theologians. And uh, today is going to be really fun. We're going to talk to Glenn Scrivener all the way from the UK. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Bill.
1: Yeah, it's it's so fun to do this potpourri of different kinds of topics. And and today's topic, I was reading a little bit of some of the reviews and how people have commented on this. and And this phrase caught my attention. It says, Despite the intellectual rigor of this book, its tone is more of an animated late-night argument in a pub, all friendly-like but with no holds barred. So I can't imagine what we're all going to get into today. This is great. Yeah,
0: it's going to be great. The book is called The Air We Breathe and How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. And it says in this book, Glenn Scrivener takes readers on a journey to discover how the teachings of Jesus not only turn the ancient world upside down, but continue to underpin the way we think of life, worth, and meaning. Far from being a relic from the past, the distinctive ideas of Christianity, such as freedom, kindness, progress, and equality, are a crucial part of the air that we breathe. And that's going to be uh, what we're going to talk about today with our special guest, Glenn Scrivener. He uh, originally was from Australia, so get ready for the coolest voice on the interview today. He has lived in the UK for more than half of his life. He worked at All Souls Church in Eastbourne, and his family is still there. And now he is an evangelist at Speak Life. Uh, He's the director there. We're really glad to have him with us again. Glenn, welcome. Hey, Peter. Hey, hey, Bill. How are you doing? Um, You always want to say, hey, Bill, and then hey, Peter. Just i i, lo- I love i love the sequence the yeah, yeah no i love the sequence <laughs> well i don't so just so you know but, uh, <laughs> glad to have you uh on the show and your book is one of the prettiest books i've i've seen in a long time the cover the design oh. is really spectacular
2: yeah i it's it's a moment when an author kind of holds their breath when they send the email and um the artwork is revealed because you don't usually have much of a say in the cover. But when this cover came, I was just blown away. I think it's, yeah, it looks fantastic. And people, unfortunately, do do uh, judge books by covers. So,
0: yeah, it's good to have a good one. Yeah, and this really is. And we're nice enough, thanks to you and your publisher, that we do have four copies today to give out. So I don't want to start a feeding frenzy for uh, Glenn's new book. But if you want to get in on the drawing, and we'll be talking about this throughout the whole hour, you can text the word book to 877 877- 933 2484 and just text the word book. No quotations, no exclamation marks, no emojis, just the four letters B O O K and text it to 877 933 2484. All right. So uh, I love what Peter said about the tone being that of uh, um, a late night, pub friendly, no holds barred kind of discussion. So I'm looking forward to some of that today, Glenn. <laughs> I think the the um the review that that came from also described the book as swashbuckling. It did. <laughs> so At the end, fun. I
1: saw that too. Swashbuckling. Yeah, I love that. Really. Like a
0: pirate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that too. So you talk about in the book framing uh, three audiences that you have in mind, uh, the nuns, the duns, and the ones. Would you talk about that some? Sure. Nuns,
2: it's important to realize it's spelled N-O-N-E-S, not, uh, not the N-U-Ns, um, but it's the people who, when you ask in a survey, do you have a faith or um, are you part of a religious community that, that you know, I, I have none. I have I have no religious affiliation. And lots of people have been talking about the rise of the nuns over the last 10 or 15 years. And to them, I, I want to say, don't be so sure that you have not been shaped by Christianity, even if you've never stepped foot inside a church, even if you've never read the Bible. Um, the Jesus revolution has built your world from the ground up. You are a goldfish and Christianity is the water that you swim in. It is the air that we breathe. And so to the nuns, that's what I want to say. Uh, to the duns, that's the D O N E Ss. Those are the people who say, I'm done with Christianity and maybe they had a a Christian past, maybe a a very extensive Christian past, or maybe they went to Christian schools for all of their youth, but they see Christianity as in the rearview mirror, and they're very glad to be getting some distance between themselves and Christianity. And to them, again, I want to say, don't be so sure that even the standards that you hold the church to are Christian standards. Uh, I think the Christian revolution is seen in the fact that even our deepest criticisms of Christianity are profoundly Christian themselves and rely on Christian values. So that's what I want to say to the Duns, and then to the ones, the W O N, um, th- those who have been won by the 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 love and the grace of Jesus. I want to show Christians that Jesus really is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of the world. He's the Lord of history. He predicted two thousand years ago that His movement would take over the world, and lo and behold. It has done exactly what he said it would do. And I think that has given a lot of confidence to Christians as they've started to read the book and, and get to grips with uh, with the argument of it.
1: Glenn, I, the category of the dons is the one maybe with which uh, I and I think a lot of the Faith Radio family is most familiar with. It's people who have been in some sort of organized faith institution And uh, and then they've walked away from it and say, yeah, I'm kind of done with this deal. But can you speak more about maybe some encouragement for that particular people group?
2: Sure. Well, in the book, I talk about seven values that Christianity has given to the world. I talk about equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And what I say is, you know that those values are supreme in our culture, because if you just reverse those values, you've just described the worst thing in the world. If you describe something that is unequal, cruel, non-consensual, unenlightened, anti-science, coercive or regressive, you've just described the worst thing. But of course, that is the way that people describe Christianity all the time. What's going on? Well, we're all children of the Jesus revolution. And... Like all children do, we like to rebel against our parents. And we find some of the values of our parents baffling. But what we can never do is actually shake the family likeness. Um, We've all been made in the image of this kind of revolution. And so what tends to happen when people critique the church is that they will critique the church for not being inclusive and diverse enough, let's say. And again, you just want to say, well, who told anybody that uh, the greatest movement in the world ought to be diverse and inclusive? Mm. That has been a value that's been given to us by Christianity. Or you might look at abuse scandals and some, some horrific abuse scandals. And the church has sometimes been one of the chief perpetrators of abuse in the history of the world. But again, I want to say there's probably two senses in which Christianity has brought abuse into the world. Um, Christians have been among the worst perpetrators, yes. But in a second sense, Christianity has brought the category of sexual abuse into the world. Because when you look at abuse scandals, you're looking at the violation of values that have been given to us by Jesus and by his revolution. You're, you're basically, if to find sexual abuse wrong, you're basically saying that bodies are like temples, that sex is a sacred thing, that power should be used to serve and not to dominate, um, you are assuming some profoundly Christian things about the way power dynamics are meant to work, about the way sex is meant to work, about the way gender is meant to work, about the way bodies are meant to be. And so I I finished the book by talking about Ann Thompson, who was um, one of the first whistleblowers against Rabbi Zacharias, the the famous uh, apologist and evangelist. And she says at the end of the book that um, Christendom has created many exiles that christ himself has received and she herself has has found tremendous solace from fleeing to jesus because she has found in him somebody who takes the side of the victim and 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 makes sense of the abuse that she has 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 felt in in life and experienced in life so um to the duns i just want to say go deeper go deeper own the critique that you have of the church, but be aware of where those values come from.
1: Glenn, maybe just uh, one more quick follow up on that too. I know that the next generation is experiencing a diversity of people around them, perhaps in ways that previous generation hasn't. And so, you, you use that um, those terms, diversity and inclusion, which are, are mm. some good buzzwords right now in Western culture. Do, Do you think that kingdom uh, diversity and inclusion is somehow different than some of the forms of Western diversity and inclusion is?
2: Mm, hundred percent. I go in in, in the book about how our equality value in the kingdom has been detached from Jesus and distorted to simply the value of the individual, which is the the sort of the atomized individual. And then uh, the value of compassion has been detached from Jesus and distorted to a kind of a competitive victimhood. Um, and the consent value, uh, when it comes to sex, has been detached from Jesus and distorted um, into my choice as regards sexuality is is kind of the transcendent value. Mm-hmm. And when you mix those three things together, you've got a heady brew. You've got I am an individual. I don't so much want to protect uh, victims. I want to be the victim or claim victim status, and choosing to be a sexual minority has a certain cachet to it. And so the, the kind of diversity and inclusion um, that gets lauded today is quite different to the biblical one, the, the biblical diversity. And I, I think it's undeniably, it's undeniable that the church is the most diverse and inclusive um, sociological phenomenon that the world has ever seen. Every tribe, nation, people, and tongue transcending cultures, transcending languages, transcending class, transcending race in in the most profound way and um, the diversity and inclusion officer at your college on campus um, probably does not exhibit the same levels of diversity, diversity of thought, um, diversity of class, diversity of race, actually as, as the Christian church does. So the buzzwords of, of diversity and inclusion, they are a, a, a remnant of the Christian revolution. But I would just say, if you if you value things like diversity and inclusion, just pull on that thread. And I think at the other end of that, you'll find a much richer account of how we are meant to be both different and united in Jesus. And I, I'd want to take people on that journey towards the original one who preached a, a true
0: equality, um, who is Jesus. Well, I am happy to say I followed much of what you guys just talked about. So I feel pretty <laughs> good about that. We're talking to Glenn Scrivener. His new book is The Air We Breathe. We are going to continue uh, after a short break. We have five, uh, four copies of the book to give out. You can text the word book if you want to get in on the drawing. i love for you to do that. 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Capster and I are enjoying the Sunburn series with our guest, Glenn Scrivener. We'll be right back. we want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. Happy music to get to get sunburnt by. You are listening to the Sunburnt series. Peter Captain and I are having a conversation today with Glenn Scrivener. And he's written a book called The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. And Glenn, in his book, sort of charts the course of the Christian revolution, showing how it shaped our world and continues to make sense of the values we hold dear. Um, so, Glenn, it sounds like you've done a tremendous amount of research Uh, particularly on the West's debt to Christianity and to Christ. I would love for you to explain more of that. I think I first was awakened to it in 2011 when the uh, 400th
2: anniversary of the King James Bible was being celebrated. And lots of people were noticing the impact of the Bible on Western culture. And um, one book that I read at that stage was by Vishal Mangalwadi, who is uh, an Indian philosopher. Who himself wondered why is the West so different to other cultures around the world and down through history? And he came to realize it's because of Christianity. And then he charts the course of the Christian revolution in his book, which is called the book that made your world. And that really started me on, on a path. And I started reading Larry Sidentop, who's a moral philosopher and talking about the invention of the individual. Um, uh, David Bentley Hart has a book called um, atheist delusions, the Christian revolution and its fashionable enemies, which is a great subtitle. And, uh, and it just started me on this um, pathway to, Seeing how actually in a lot of secular scholarship, um, the the difference that Jesus has made to the world is just becoming an, an unmistakable, unignorable fact in, in history. And uh, Tom Holland, uh, the historian, not the Spider-Man actor, but uh, Tom Holland, he's even cooler, the, hist- the historian. Uh, Tom Holland, he's, he's written this book, uh, Dominion which is a whopping great, uh, read about the, the Christian influence on the West and, and his great, um, kind of contribution is, is to say that's, you know, the, the triumph of the Jesus revolution is so complete that we don't notice it. And that's how, you know, how complete it is. Um, <laughs> because even your, even your reasons for, for not being, for, for not, um, uh, for not being Christian, uh, uh, thoroughly Christian. And so I, I bought, I bought his book for my father-in-law, um, one Christmas and I even got Tom Holland to sign it. And yet it sort of sat on my father-in-law's shelf unread. And I thought, ah, oh, I'd love to get this same, you know, it's like a 600 page book, but I'd, I'd love to get this, this same, um, thesis really this same argument into the same arguments into the hands of people like my father-in-law who would not have described himself as a, as a, as a Christian at that stage. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, i kind of wrote that with the, the, the the Stanton Sloan's of this world in mind, um, to try and to try and get him to to see that yeah
0: he's a goldfish and Christianity is the water he swims in. Glenn, I know in the in the book you you sort of chart the the Christian origins of uh, things like human rights and justice and even love for neighbor and and just frankly what it means to be human. But you also talk about myths along the way. I'd love to hear some of those. So I, I guess um, Aesop's
2: fables are uh, probably familiar um, to lots of people and the, the hare and the tortoise and, and that sort of thing as a, a story of, you know, slow and steady wins the race. And that's the way that ancient fables worked. Um, there is basically a fool, like, um, the the hare, the rabbit, um, who thinks he's so clever and he gets his, you know, his comeuppance by the the slow, plodding tortoise who wins the race. And so many of Aesop's fables are kind of like that. They're, they're sort of tragic in form and so there's the story of the snake who wants to, um, you know, get bigger than he is and so he stretches himself out until he bursts, stupid snake. And that, that's <laughs> literally like what the what the story is or... Um, you know, the, there's um, various animals who want to be higher up in the food chain, um, and end up getting eaten by, you know, the by the biggest one, and and so the the entire sort of structure of those myths is basically there to tell you know your place. Don't get ideas above your station. There is a, a steep hierarchy, and you need to just find your place in that hierarchy, and and don't try to to upset the apple cart. And then into that setting, you've got Jesus coming and telling stories like once upon a time, there was a guy who was beaten up by thieves. And at that stage, you know, that's Luke chapter 10. You're, if, if this was Aesop telling the myth, then the story would just be stupid, man. He shouldn't have been on the Jericho Road at that time of night. The end. Right.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: but then the story continues and then you get the religious authorities who are passing by on the other side and again if the story stopped there aesop would say good on them um they kept themselves clean they obeyed the law just as they was just as they were meant to do Uh, and who knows if this guy who was beaten up by the side of the road was meant to be beaten up. Maybe the, there's the reason why the village wanted him dead. Maybe there's a reason why the gods want him dead. Who are we to intervene? And yet the story continues. And we've got the, the good Samaritan and he comes and he expends extraordinary effort in the salvation of this poor wretch. And what you see in the, sort of the stories that Jesus tells and then the story that Jesus inhabits is that he is the ultimate good Samaritan who comes to us to upend nature. And we are like the ones who are beaten up on the side of the road. And yes, by rights, we ought to perish, but it's Jesus who expends himself in this most extraordinary compassion to upend the way of nature. The way of nature is the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. And what we see in Jesus is the very opposite of that. He is the fittest who is sacrificed for we, the weakest so that we, the weakest might be swept up into his kind of life and and to pass it on to others to go and do likewise. And so Jesus creates this compassion revolution. This love ethic just goes viral in the first century. And it births hospitals and it births charities and, and it births orphanages. And it births a totally different way of seeing stories as well. Um, the the tragedy gets turned into a comedy the the happily ever after starts to be uh uh an ending that people start to believe in because they believe that there was this beautiful stranger who came and yes he entered into our tragedy but he rose up from the dead and i guess the future is bright. so what jesus kind of upends there is our compassion ethic um, but it's also, he upends the very notion of what a good story is. And and these days, I mean, you, you go and watch the Marvel Cinematic Universe and they just churn they churn out Christ myth after Christ myth after Christ myth because, you know, the, the hero comes and gives of him or herself unto death and somehow snatches victory from the jaws of defeat and there's a happily ever after and the guy and the girl get together. And um, even the way we tell stories now has been totally revolutionized by Jesus.
1: So interesting, Glenn, when, when you talk about the, the myth, we do respond, like when Iron Man dies at the end and, you know, he snaps his fingers mm-hmm. and, and, um, Thanos is, is brought to an end. We respond to this self-sacrifice in a certain kind of way. And yet we are encouraged to live a different kind of way oftentimes in the West, which is go get your own, live your best life now. You only have one life to live. You better make sure you achieve your dreams, all of that. So are there some competing narratives?
2: Yeah, there are some totally some competing narratives, and and also we we always want to see ourselves as the hero. We we are the center of attention, and the the fate of mankind rests on our shoulders, and and somehow we are up to the job. So that that is definitely um a, a problem, and I guess it comes from a kind of an expressive individualism that we have now, which interestingly is a development from Christianity. And in many ways, a perversion of Christianity. We've detached the the beautiful um, notion that I am an individual, and that I I do have a status before God. Um, and you cannot trade away my rights against the the, the good of the collective. Um, there's this inviolable dignity to me, and you know that has absolutely been a gift of the Christian Revolution and our belief in human rights and equality have come from the Christian revolution. But I think again, detached and divorced from the Christian story, um, we atomize ourselves. And instead of, instead of being, uh, a free individual, or in, instead of being a person who is personally loved by Jesus, we become a free individual kind of free floating from that. And then, you know, um, I, I talk about consent in the in the book about uh, as, as one of the great gifts of the Christian revolution. Ooh, hey, Glenn, yeah, can I inter- Can I
0: interrupt? Can yeah, I interrupt and then say on. when we come back from our break we can pick up on consent because that's a really interesting topic. I want to give that some space uh, because we do our, up against a hard break here. Glenn Scrivener is our guest, his book is the air we breathe. We've got four copies to give out. Text the word book to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four.
2: It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill
0: Arnold. Welcome to the show. So glad to have Glenn Scrivener as uh, our guest today. Dr. Peter Kafner and I are continuing our Sunburn series through the summer. And as you uh, remember, we take a variety of topics and The one we are talking about today is uh, Glenn's new book called The Air We Breathe. And Peter, I I was doing uh, some research during the break. Uh, There's this this thing called uh, like Google, I don't know, but I was able (laughs) to uh, look up Glenn. And Glenn, I have a question for you, which is going to be very upsetting to Peter and I. Have you uh, turned 40 yet? Oh, yeah. No, I have. uh, I turned 44 last week. Okay. What a relief. Because for some, for some reason, I thought, if you haven't hit 40 yet, we're, this, this interview is over. Because
1: you, know? you and I don't have a lot of upside left, Bill. And, and Glenn clearly does. So, yeah. yes, you're but right. there's
0: just so much wisdom coming. And so anyway, yes. uh, congratulations once again on your new book, The Air We Breathe. And we're um, I sort of cut you off at the uh, last half because I wanted to hear more as we start this segment on, on consent. No, that's fine. I, I was talking about expressive individualism
2: and yes. I got all too expressive. And, that's okay. <laughs> um, that that's that's my problem. Um so yeah, I I I think the the myth that we tell ourselves today is that there's a hero inside ourselves and we just need to awaken the hero mm. and uh look out world, here I come. Um and and again, this is this has come from um the gift of, of Christianity, which has been that there is there is the gift of the individual, you know, that there, there is, um, I do have rights. I do have dignity. And if I'm, a, if, if I'm a minority, you can't just trade away my, my, my privileges. You can't just trade, 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 away, trade away my rights in order to, um, to make life easier for the rest of the community. That that's been a wonderful thing, but I think we've taken that and run with it a mile in which, now it's, it's just all about me. It it used to be, I'm a child of God loved uniquely by the father. And now you get rid of the father and it's just, I'm special all by myself. And, and so the stories that we tell start to be quite different from the Christian one.
1: Yeah. And, but <laughs> People don't, at the end of the day, that doesn't really serve them terribly well, right? It, it seems like dreams fail and people get confused and, and life throws all kinds of curveballs um, in, into the midst of us. And so how, how can the West sort of recapture the Christian narrative instead of moving towards this expressive individualism even more so? How can we go into a different kind of narrative where we aren't just so derailed every time something difficult happens in this world?
2: Right. Well, I mean, Jesus told a famous story about this, and and the the kid runs off to the far country and wants to orphan himself from from his father. And the money runs out. The money always runs out, and the the wild times always end in the pigsty. And you know, we are noticing a meaning crisis. You know. Um, And of course we have a meaning crisis. If the story that we're telling ourselves is that, you know, I am a biological survival machine clinging to an insignificant rock hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction, then, you know, it, it doesn't matter that I've got a new iPhone. It it doesn't matter that I I'm going on vacation somewhere nice this year. It's none of that is going to make up for the incredibly scary place that we've put ourselves in the secular story. And so, I I hope in the in the book that I I really give a vision for what Christian preaching has done in the past, and Christian preaching has entered into some very scary worldviews. the 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 worldview of 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 the Greco Roman world was incredibly fatalistic, incredibly brutal. You were just going to get crushed by powers from on higher, and there was no hope whatsoever. And just preaching this bonkers idea of God on the cross who rises up to give you a future and a hope that absolutely turned the world upside down. And when you see the effect of Christian preaching down through the ages, I think it gives you confidence that the gospel really is the power of God for salvation. And the word of the cross really is God's power and God's wisdom to make, make a change today. And I'm, I'm noticing in my evangelism are people who are, fed on a diet of expressive individualism and nihilism are hungry for the the reality and the the truth and the meaning that is found in jesus and so i I hope the book that gives gives people kind of confidence that that preaching this message really is good news for today
1: and you've referenced parables a couple times now in communicating that message it's, can we use parables today? Is that just what only reserved for what Jesus can do, or they they seem different than straight preaching or straight stories mm-hmm. that they really do have a point? But I think it would be pretty compelling to capture people who are maybe stuck in a different way of life.
2: Oh, I hope so. Because I, I try to do that a lot. So at Speak Life, we make all sorts of short films, and we always try to capture the imagination. Because um, I think in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul talks about how we cast down imaginations. And he uses this sort of an analogy of it's, it's a little bit like how Israel took took over kind of Jericho and and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And he uses this, this language in second Corinthians 10 verse five about the imaginations of the non-Christian worlds. Our non-Christian friends are trapped in a citadel that is, that is made of thoughts and aspirations and moral assumptions and, and highest loves. And our job is to cast down those imaginations by, Preaching a more captivating, more compelling vision for what life is all about. You know, the mind is not a debating chamber. It is much more like an IMAX cinema. And so telling stories is a brilliant way of capturing imaginations and, and putting someone into the strange new world of the Bible and getting them to 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 look around again. So I'm constantly telling stories in my evangelism. So like if somebody has a problem with science and they, they say, I can't mm. be a believer because I'm more a person of science, I I tell them about Betty the botanist. I, I tell them that this tiny little story about Betty who one day says to her laboratory assistant, Gareth, um, thank you for giving me that botanical specimen yesterday. I've run all sorts of tests on it. I've mapped its genome. I'm about to get you know, a, a prize for my knowledge of the bot- botanical specimen. And Gareth, the laboratory assistant, says, look, Betty, that was a long stem rose. It was Valentine's Day. Do, do you understand what I gave to you? And uh, so I've told the story okay betty has mistaken a valentine's gift for a botanical specimen what and then the question what do we feel about betty she's a moron is she not a moron
1: like does she
2: understand the rose yes she understands the rose in one sense um in another sense she she is absolutely clueless about the meaning of the rose and then i say what if this whole world is like that rose What if it's given to us by someone who loves us? And what if all we've done with it is go, go to the laboratory and just run tests on it? What if there's a giver of this world who's wanting to communicate his love to us? And at that stage, it could both be a love gift and a a scientific specimen. And so, I've found that telling a story like that really just kind of destabilizes the, the person on the other end and it immerses them in, in a different way of thinking. So I,
0: I'm a big believer in telling stories. Absolutely. Hey, Peter, uh, I don't know if you heard it this way, but it sounds like Gareth is going to be hearing from HR. I, I, I think <laughs> you can't I think go flirting at case. work. Come on. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's a romantic gesture, Bill. Is okay. it not allowed? Okay. I understand. It's uh, – I just had the the book uh, chapter six open, and that was going to be my next question, uh, Glenn, uh, because I'm I'm fascinated with your science chapter in your book. And Glenn Scrivener is our guest. If you just joined us, and the book is called "The Air We Breathe: How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality." It's a brand new book, and in chapter six, um, talk about the uh, the core belief of the, uh, the 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 scriptures, and then the, the book of nature, which is kind of the universe and how they work together, and. And I love the fact that you um, brought up the case of um, uh, Galileo in the book. Yeah. And it comes up in
2: conversation all the time,
0: doesn't it? Uh, most of my friends,
2: they, they don't so much say I'm anti-God. They, most of my friends just say, I'm good with science. Right. Science, science will do for me. Yeah. Um, and the whole point of this chapter is what if you don't have to choose? You know, Because choosing would be like Betty saying, no, the rose cannot be a romantic gesture. It can't be, it must only be a botanical specimen. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the Christian is saying it doesn't stop being a botanical specimen and please, by all means, map the genome of the rose, but that does not exhaust the meaning of the rose. Neither does science exhaust the meaning of this world. And I think, um, And I I think philosophers of science recognize that. I think they recognize that science has limits and scientists ought to recognize that science has limits and it is not the only way of looking at the world. So what I do in this chapter is just have a look at the scientific, uh, the historical origins of science and just say it was Christians at Christian universities studying nature for Christian reasons, according to Christian presuppositions that actually birthed the scientific method. Makes you think, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. So I, I just do a history lesson with people.
0: Hmm. I I love that discussion and to be equipped for it uh, in the world when you get the the arguments of the the people taking the position of science and um I I, I love the illustration of Betty. I will definitely use that one as well. Mm-hmm. It's free. You can take it. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> well, seeing how you said it on my show, I feel like I can repeat it. Absolutely. Yeah. Glenn Scrivener is my guest and the book he wrote is called The Air We Breathe and we have four copies to give away. So if you want to get in on the drawing and I recommend texting the word book then to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Just text the word book. All right, uh, Glenn, can we talk about uh, just about the freedoms, the freedoms in Christ that we have and then what the world is saying about these freedoms. Yeah.
2: So after I talk about the scientific revolution, I I talk about probably the the biggest moral earthquake um, of the last 2000 years, although there've been, there've been many transformations. Um, We used to take for granted um, gladiatorial games and blood sports. We used to take for granted child sexual abuse. We used to take for granted um, that there's no such thing as, as charities or hospitals, um, But I think the the one thing that we took for granted in every human society was slavery. Um, uh, And in this chapter, I talk about the very mixed history of the church as regards um, slavery. And I I certainly don't look away from uh, the evils of Christian traffickers and Christian slave masters, um, and many of whom did indeed uh, justify that evil uh, with the Bible. But then I, I also press into figures like Frederick Douglass, who um, was a, an enslaved person and a preacher. And the most extraordinary thing that the those enslaved people adopted the religion of their slave masters in the most subversive way possible, such that they more truly... Um, Represented and and lived out the 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 truth of the scriptures that were held above their heads by their their Christian enslavers, and you cannot get away from the fact that abolition was a, a spiritual, religious, Christian movement from first to last. Um, Quakers to begin with, evangelicals as well, and it really was uh, it was it was Christians for Christian reasons that overturned a human universal that is known to to every society in the world, around around the world and down through history. And so, yeah, it's it's a very mixed story to tell um, because, you know, in my book, Christians do not come out well. Christ comes out well. Christians, not so much. Mm -hmm. Um, A a friend of mine, John Dixon, says that uh, Jesus has given the world the most beautiful song to sing. Christians have often sang off key. Sometimes we've been the most discordant voices, but the song remains true. And when people have been to some degree in tune with that song, the most incredible things have have happened. And and abolition has been the most incredible moral earthquake. It's it's a moral earthquake that still has many aftershocks and still requires many aftershocks. Um, but it happened for
0: Christian reasons, and I think we need to press into those. Mm-hmm. Well, I would I would invite you, Glenda. To- to sing us into break, if you want to, but maybe I'll just do it myself. When you sing, do you have a good do? You, do you like to sing? Do you have a good singing voice? I like to sing,
2: so I'll, I'll just answer the first question there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, I was wondering if you sung, would you still have your cool accent? You know, it's like those, oh, those, yeah. those rock stars. Oh that-
2: yeah. I know. Unfortunately, even in church worship, sometimes um, people slip into American accents because some of the like the worship music we hear and
0: people sing about God. I'm like, dude, who, is, who is this God that we're all worshiping? Like, all right, well, we'll be back with Glenn Scrivener. Again, his book is The Air We Breathe with four copies to give out. Text the word book to 877 933 Welcome back to the Summer Sunburnt series. We enjoy this always in the summertime. Gives us a chance to talk to all kinds of uh, authors and theologians and interesting people. And we've got all three in one today. We've got Glenn Scrivener as our guest. He's written a book called The Air We Breathe. We all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, inequality. And Peter Kaffner and I are um, really glad to have him on. Uh, Glenn, you talk in chapter 10 of your book Choose Your Miracle. Interesting discussion, interesting uh, conversation about Jordan Peterson. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that. He's an interesting figure, isn't he? I'm I'm never
2: sure whether he's on Team Jesus or not, or (laughs) whether I'm on Team Jordan or not, but he's interesting to watch (laughs) anyway. And uh, he had this fascinating conversation with another YouTuber called Jonathan Peugeot, who's an Orthodox Christian. and, um, And Jordan Peterson said... I've got the choice of believing between two impossible things. Either God took flesh, died on the cross, and rose again in order to birth a revolution that's upended the world. Or the other thing I could believe is that human beings invented that most preposterous story. And somehow that story has triumphed over every other story and has worked itself into every other atom of culture. And he says, it's not obvious to me, which one is more absurd. Hmm. And so that's why I call it choose your miracle, because I, I think we are already living within a miracle. Um, you know, my, my non-Christian friend might not believe that Jesus turned water into wine, but they ought to believe that Jesus turned God forsaken execution into world domination. And I would say that that is a miracle that is orders of magnitude more improbable than turning water into wine. We are living within the most extraordinary miracle in which a man on a cross has made our world. And what I'm doing as I say, look, choose your miracle is, is I'm saying don't choose to believe the most absurd thing, which is that somehow a man on a cross who is simply a man has made your world. I want to invite them to believe the miracle that makes sense of what would otherwise be absurd that maybe the one on the cross has made your world because he is your maker. And the reason why he has been able to turn God forsaken execution into world domination is because he is exactly who he said he is. And we live in a miraculous kind of a world and it's his world. And so I'm, I'm basically trying to yeah get, get people to choose your miracle because all non-miraculous accounts of the world are off the table.
1: Can you bring that into just everyday conversation too, Glenn? I'm assuming you have platforms that you can tell these sorts of things, um, whether it's the pulpit or a classroom, but it, can you get this kind of hearing just in a coffee conversation or with friends and family?
2: Yeah, I, I guess I, I would just kind of say, look, um, how do we how do we get to believe that... Um, How do we get to believe in equality? You know, um, somehow um, everybody now believes in equality. If you don't believe in equality, you get kicked off Facebook pretty quickly. Um, You believe in the the moral equal worth of every single human, no matter their race, creed, religion, whatever, their class, anything. Um, Where do you get that from? Especially when you consider that the culture into which these kinds of beliefs was birthed was a culture of like incredible hierarchy and dominance and cruelty. Um, and and yet it was it was undeniably the the preaching of the cross. It was the preaching of people saying, "Hey, you want to know the most godlike thing you've ever seen? It's Jesus choking to death in crucifixion." And it's it's the craziest it's the craziest idea. But actually, you press into that, and you see if that's what God really is like, then I guess the highest figure has plumbed the depths of the lowest pit in order to be with us and for us and to invite us into his family, then then suddenly the equality story starts to make sense and the compassion story starts to make sense and the consent story starts to make sense because he's he's taken the side of the victim. And, but without that crazy story, where do we get our ideas of equality, compassion and consent and, and all those sorts of things? I was, I was having a conversation with a woman just today. She's, she's written uh, a fascinating book on uh, it's the case against the sexual revolution, and she's not a Christian. She's curious about Christian things, but she's she's not a Christian. Um, and I, I I kept on pressing her, why do you believe in the equality of the sexes? And she had to admit at the at the end of the day, I guess it's a hangover from Christianity, because she had she had no material explanation for this. She had no biological explanation for this. There really can only be a, a spiritual explanation. But as soon as you start believing in that, then then why not believe the other stuff too? You know, all of a sudden you're you're not just believing in what your eyes see. You're not just believing in in the products of science or logic or reason. To believe in the equality of the sexes is a kind of a spiritual belief, and it's been given to you by the Jesus thing. So I want to say to people who don't think of themselves as believers. No, you already believe a whole bunch of stuff that is not the result of reason and evidence. You have these moral assumptions and intuitions and gut instincts, and you live your life by them. They have come to you through the Jesus revolution. So one of the big images I give is, is nobody needs to take a leap of faith. Like we're already mid air. Mm-hmm. What we really need is some ground beneath our feet. That's what we really need. And, and only Jesus will
0: do. That's amazing, Glenn. I'd like to read something from uh, your book. The book is called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. And uh, Rosie, maybe you can stick on that cool filter that makes me sound Australian. That's right now. Yeah, I've got it. Go ahead. Is that not working? Did we Mm, not pay for that advanced system?
1: Can you? Yeah. Well, we can hear it it on our site. All
0: right. So I'll just use my regular voice then. All right. This is from Glenn's book. Resurrection explains why, far from being a tragedy, the cross has represented healing and hope. Resurrection explains why the pattern of all great stories and the pattern of the meaningful life is triumph through sacrifice. Most of all, resurrection explains Jesus. It explains why the one famous for his death has been encountered by billions as the one most fully alive. No no further calls. We've got a winner. (laughs) That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and I just want to say to people...
2: um, what, what, what are paths to belief in the resurrection? Um, now I could take people back to the first century and say to people, look, here are five facts that I could tell you, you know, Jesus definitely died on the cross. He was definitely placed in that tomb. The whereabouts were understood. That tomb was guarded. That tomb on the third day was definitely empty. People had experiences of the risen Jesus afterwards, which went on for 40 days until Christians say he returned to heaven. I could I could give you those sort of five minimal facts about the first century in order to, to convince you of the resurrection. And there's a time and a place for that. But what I want to do in the book is tell you about the, the subsequent 20 centuries after that. And the analogy I use is a bit like the Big Bang. So in, in science, the reason why we came to believe in a Big Bang was about a hundred years ago, we noticed that the universe was expanding. Ah, if the universe is expanding, well, if you just hit the rewind button for long enough, Hmm. I guess there must have been a time when the universe was just a single sort of a singularity, right? Mm -hmm. And from there it expanded. That was the big bang, right? And what I want to say in the book is we can do the same sort of thing historically. There has been an expanding universe of values, equality, compassion, consent, and all the others. There's been an expanding kingdom that has been triumphing over every kind of distinction in the world and every race and nation and continents and out it goes. There's, there's this expanding universe of the Jesus revolution. Now, if you wind the clock back, where did it erupt? It erupted in the first century. It, it erupted around the year 30 when, when Christians say Jesus actually stepped out of the tomb and unleashed the most incredible, extraordinary spiritual power. There was, a, there was a big bang. And I, I'm just saying, look, we live in this expanding universe because there was a bang. Do you have an explanation for that? Because it's like, why on earth did the Jesus movement not die with Jesus? Christians have an explanation. We, we say the Jesus movement did not die with Jesus because Jesus didn't stay dead. <laughs> and that seems a perfectly good explanation. If Jesus did stay dead... And when you notice, like, what losers and morons Jesus is surrounded by, <laughs> come up with a better
0: explanation for why there's been the most extraordinary being Bang. Yeah. Glenn, thank you uh, uh, very much for doing the show. Pleasure. Yeah, Peter and I have had a blast. I don't think it's been a while since I've heard the, the word losers and morons on the show, so I appreciate uh, <laughs> your candid public discussion. Thank you. It's been great having you on. Absolute pleasure. You bet. Glenn Scrivener has been our guest today. His book is The Air We Breathe. We do have four copies to give out. All you have to do is text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll see you next time on our Sunbird series. Have a great uh, rest of the day.